been a while, but we are finally here at the episode I have referenced roughly a jillion times, approximate number, in my previous uh, going-throughs of Season 5, Equinox. However, after going through this episode, I know I've said this before, but as ever, I know not everyone has been watching this the whole time, so... Every time I hit a two-parter, and this will be true in the future, by the way, with regards to Babylon 5 or you know, Farscape or you know, whatever other shows we look at in the future, um, including the other Star Treks, anytime I hit a, a two-parter, I decide after I've watched the first part, in some cases after I've watched the second part, whether or not I'm going to cover it in one video or two. In this case, I really do need to cover this in two videos, not one. And the reason why is because Equinox Part 1 and Equinox Part 2 are completely different episodes that basically might as well not actually be a two-parter. Now, that be because of that, and because of the nature of a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff, I'm really not actually going to be talking about most of the problems with Equinox until next week, when we get to Equinox Part 2. And I apologize, I know some of you have been looking forward to me talking about that. I know several people have said, oh, I can't wait for you to discuss this matter. There's some things that really need to be talked about in the second part, not the first. So I do apologize. This is going to be a little bit more of a standard uh, rumination here for the first part. I don't want to cover at least two things, though, with regards to the behind-the-scenes perspective, though. First of all and foremost, this is, in my opinion, tied for the worst example of learning the wrong lesson. Now you now you know what you're thinking, huh? What do you mean we're learning the wrong lesson? There's this happens many many times. In fact, this has arguably already happened and is actively happening right now, historically speaking, with the movie Deadpool, which came out earlier this year. Learning the wrong lesson is when you look at something that's successful and say, "Aha! It was successful because of blah. I'm gonna replicate blah." It's actually a side category or sub excuse me a subcategory of bullet point syndrome. In other words, looking at Call of Duty Modern Warfare, you know, Call of Duty 4 Modern Warfare, and saying, ah, oh, it was successful because of blah, and then trying to replicate that and it, learning the wrong lesson. <laughs> you see how that, that, that comes forward in that. So, with Best of Both Worlds, and I know I've said this before, but it bears repeating, they went into Part 1 and they hadn't actually written Part 2 yet. And Best of Both Worlds turned out to be pretty much the big success story of the next generation and, and is still, to this day, considered one of the better episodes in the history of all of Star Trek. It may not be the best, but it's usually, it, it, when people mention the best Star Trek episode, Best of Both Worlds is usually mentioned in that conversation. So people looked at it and say, aha, the clear thing to do is to not write episode two when we're writing episode one. As I will discuss when we get to TNG, there are many, many factors as to why that worked in that case. It is also worth noting that, at least in my opinion, the episode 2 of Best of Both Worlds is actually much, much weaker than episode 1. But it should be fairly obvious from a writer's perspective why this is just a bad idea. You're trying to write a story here, but you're not writing a story, you're writing two stories. You write this, and then you write this. One of the big benefits of planning ahead in writing, at least for me, is the fact that you can do things like foreshadowing, you can do things like prepping, you can do things like world building, and it helps to flesh out the various types of continuity, string continuity, setting continuity, character continuity, you know, that kind of stuff. And this is actually one of the things I like about Babylon 5. They had so much planned in advance. One of the things I've noticed as I've been going through the season one of Babylon 5 is I've actually been surprised. There's stuff I'm noticing this time that I have not noticed before. I've watched Babylon 5 how many times? 
I'm still noticing new things as I go through season one of stuff where they just have this tiny little hint, tiny little bits of foreshadowing that don't actually really make sense until you watch it the second or third or eighth or twentieth time because they planned it in advance. When you do the opposite, that can work. It has worked. We've seen this in Star Trek, no less. But the, the type of writing is completely different. Rather than a planned out structure and a arc, what you have is a story that you then have to creatively try to tie into. Now that can work. Again, it's, it's a different type of writing. But it's obvious why it's generally a bad idea, because you're basically gambling at that point that you'll be able to take the original story and do something with it. Joe Minoski has uh, gone on record saying that he really hated the construction of this episode. Equinox Part 1, specifically. Uh, now, I've talked both good and bad about Joe Minoski. He's really good at character stuff, he's really good at certain types of writing, and he is absolutely terrible at others. He and I actually violently disagree. Joe Minoski, if the, for those who don't remember, is the guy who was talking about back in the uh, Leonardo da Vinci episode... Well, who cares how it happened? Just write in some techno babble and make it work. You know, total lack of regard for any form of continuity. All he wants to do is get to the good stuff. So, quote unquote, right? Well, obviously, I disagree with that mentality, but I will give the man credit where credit is due. And in fact, I think one of the reasons I enjoy Equinox Part One, and I'm going to start distinguishing the two episodes so much, is because of the character interactions. We'll talk more about it in a bit. But what, so when they were making this episode, um, as I've said before, I feel like Season 5 pretty much knocked it out of the park. I really feel like they did some good stuff with this. I feel like uh, some of the best of Voyager was in Season 5. I used to be able to say you know, Season 3 or Season 4 was my favorite seasons. Season 5 has seriously challenged that. It certainly had its problem episodes. But there's some good stuff on display. And there's some creative stuff on display. And as I've mentioned before, one of the things Brandon Braga really wanted to do was he wanted to push the show. He wanted to stretch. He wanted to try new things creatively. And some of those things failed, and some of those things succeeded, and I like that. And he will continue to do that in the future. But season five really hit the nail on the head, I think. And, well, was going to lead into something I'll talk about next week. But the point I'm reaching now for this episode is the fact that, by their own admission, they had hit a form of creative fatigue. They had, and this is logical. I mean, everyone out there, I'm sure, understands at least to some extent what this is like, where you've been going through something and you're just like, I can't come up with any new ideas. You know, I, I can't, I don't know, make something happen. You just, you start, the well starts to run dry and you need some time to recharge those creative juices. And so they're just staring at a piece of paper going, Duh. The best thing they were able to come up with was this idea of another crew that was stranded in the Delta Quadrant that had committed genocide. That was that was the original punt, the, the 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 cell line, and they're like, ah, oh, that'll never work. Fast forward, however long. Okay, we have no other ideas. Let's go with the genocide crew thing. Um, now, to give you a little of insight of how this works, at least I should say in the time how this worked, usually a script would have been doctored and put together before they ever start filming, right? Well, they were so behind on this one and so lacking in creative structure that they had actually already hired the captain, uh, I wrote his name, no, John, John Savage, uh, in order to play Captain Ramson, Ransom, before they had even finished writing the script, which is actually really unusual for this particular, for, for, for Voyager in general, but also for how the Star Treks have always worked. That's not how that works. Usually they have the script done and doctored before they start to hiring and then 
And all of that happens, you know, a couple of weeks in advance, and then they go to film, and they film for like three or four days, it usually depends. And then, boom, done, cut, goes to editing. In this case, they already had John Savage hired to play Captain Ransom, and in fact had it already started doing work on the set with the first few scenes before the script had even been written. That's how, that, I mean, that really helps emphasize the problems with the Equinox two-parter, in my opinion. Because they were just, uh, well... Oh, uh, maybe, uh, you know, they, they didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> and, I, and I sympathize legitimately. I'm reminded of uh, the discussions I've had about the Transformers movie, where, uh, specifically Revenge of the Fallen, where they actually had started recording before they'd actually written a script. You know, it's, it's a similar, not as bad, but similar problem. So... What they did, and, and Joe Minoski himself also spoke vehemently against this and, and took, took a lot of the blame for this, the idea that they had started writing the characters, and they did a good job with that. I'll credit where credit is due. They had four guest star speaking roles, which is actually quite unusual for Star Trek, for the formula. So four guest stars, all of which had speaking roles, all of which were major characters, all of which got a fairly large amount of screen time and a good amount of character development. So really good stuff there. And that was, you could see what, what was happening there, though. They didn't have an arc. They didn't have a structure. They didn't have a plot. They just had these characters. So Joe Minoski is writing these characters, and they went out and hired people and got some got some good people. Or again, John Savage does a great job as Captain Ramson, in my opinion. Even though I keep trying to mispronounce his name. Um, and so they started really fleshing out, okay, let's start doing, let's start recording the character scenes and we'll work out the rest later. And if you watch the episode, you can kind of see how in the first few scenes things don't 100% line up with the later scenes. And, it, and I mean, they can be made to. They can be explained away. But you can kind of see if you're watching it how the actors themselves weren't aware of what their characters had been doing in the past, because for the actors, that past hadn't been written yet. The whole uh, thing with the aliens hadn't really been decided yet. You can kind of see that in their performance and their portrayal. Um, <clears throat> and as they were doing it, the overall arc kind of became more cohesive. And there's one line, which I'll actually talk about later, that really helped solidify the arc. One line. I'm gonna, in fact, I'm going to underline it. I hate to... Forget, I hate to say, I'll talk about it later, and then I forget about it. Where is it? Where is it? There it is right there. Underline. Actually kind of crossed it out, but it's okay. Um, let's talk about the episode itself. So first of all, the teaser's great. Uh, Livingston, David Livingston is the director for this episode. I've spoken huge praise of him many times in the past. And that praise continues to this day. He pulls a lot of energy into the scene, into the trailer, or the teaser, excuse me. But the thing he does absolutely brilliantly is he shows the desperate, destroyed sh ship. I mean, the bridge looks trashed. The ship looks trashed. There are dead bodies basically just lying there. As, as in the people who are on the bridge haven't had the chance to go dispose of their own dead comrades who are lying right there. That's how bad it is. And then the next scene after that is Janeway and Seven calmly, quietly, not even any music, walking down a corridor discussing exactly who Captain Ransom is in a fairly normal, common tone, just talking about what's happening. Beautiful contrast. Very next scene, right back to the ship. And again, amazing counter-contrast yet again, showcasing just how horrible their situation is. In fact, one of my favorite lines in that little bit there is when they're talking to the uh, uh, the bald gentleman. I can't remember his name. I, I don't remember all four 
guest stars uh, character names. I just remember Captain Ransom, but the 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 blue shirt. He's uh, laying there. He's got his. He do, He nails this. He does an amazing job of being in this kind of quiet, not quite there tone. I can't even do it right now. You know, I can. You can tell there's something wrong with him as he's talking, and he says so so calmly. Could you please see if my limbs are still there? I haven't felt them in a while. You know, the way he says that, and the way you know she's like, please do not be afraid, and he says, oh, it's too late for that. You know, brilliant brilliant acting on his part and again showing that contrast now that contrast is very important because that i think is the only thing that is the successful uh, arc of equinox part one but again we'll get to that in a bit um <clears throat> the uh next thing i want to talk about and i it, so like i said really 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 great human interactions the way that uh, the first officer gentleman interacts with Bellana feels very natural, very human. Whether or not there's any romantic connotations there or not is up for you to decide. I personally think there were. I personally think that someone who has been in the situation he has been for months, seeing his ex-girlfriend is, is showing admirable restraint to not be quite literally flinging himself at her. The way he embraced her in a, just an open, honest hug, though, again, helped emphasize just that human contact, which is hard to underestimate. And then he says really sadly about, you know, Tom Paris, oh, but you, you could do worse, you know. And the interactions with the engineer, the woman who's, again, I don't remember any other names, the blonde woman in, in the engineer outfit, uh, and her interactions with Chakotay, brilliant, brilliant scenes. Her, you know, it, it, it's... I don't want to segue too much here, but speaking as someone who has uh, and does suffer from post-traumatic stress, it's a very real, very difficult to understand thing. Because if, if you've never been through it, I've noticed this. Some people just don't get what it's like. And some people just scoff at it or look at it. It's one of those minor things, one of those smaller things. Oh, whatever. You've just got this tiny little problem that's not a real problem. You don't have a real issue. You're just tussing it up. And, and, I'm just, and I hate that attitude. I get it a lot. But speaking from personal experience, it is a very irrational fear. And again, I don't want to segue even further into the difference between rational fear and irrational fear. You can get the def definition just by the terminology. It is a very irrational thing you go through in post-traumatic stress. And her, you know, oh, yeah, no, I'll just get into the, the corner. You know, because, again, Chakotay just is completely dismissive. She flat out says, I'm suffering from a little bit of post-traumatic stress. And then she, he asks her to get into a turbo lift. And now, in Chakotay's defense, after he he acquiesced to her very quickly and very easily. Again, being Chakotay, pretty good people person. You know, he's he's been that fairly consistently, except when he's badly written. So the moment she said, "I think I'll take the Jeffrey's tube anyway," he's like, doesn't even argue, doesn't belittle her. I could use the exercise anyways. Good touch. But the way the actress portrayed the woman just slowly degenerating into irrational fear, until she literally screams for emergency halt and rushes out of the turbo lift very well done very human and the way savage himself interacts with janeway now that's interesting <laughs> how often have you broken the prime directive to help your crew and her response is broken it never first of all i am calling a massive technically on that excuse me <clears throat> a massive technically on behalf of Janeway saying that she's never broken the Prime Directive. And if you asked me in reality land and not legality land, I'd say, bull freaking crap, you've never broken the Prime Directive. <sighs> you have broken the Prime Directive so many times that there are websites out there that have a list of how many times you've broken the Prime Directive. 
That's completely ignoring the Omega situation. Let's just ignore that one. Because, <laughs> you know, that supersedes the Prime Directive. I mean, really? But the thing... I'll discuss more about why that pisses me off in a minute. I'm building up to this, trust me. But the thing I really want to draw your attention to in that scene is how uh, Ransom... I keep calling him Savage because the actor's name. The actor's name is Savage, by the way, John Savage. Uh, the captain's name is Captain Ransom. I don't remember his first name. I am so bad with names. I just watched this episode. Captain Ransom, the way he interacts with her, is so clearly feeling her out. Whereas the engineer is just being honestly herself, and the first officer is just being honestly himself. And we see the uh, the science gentleman as well. Again, the blue shirt. The way he interacts with Seven, trying to, you know, coordinate with her. Again, just very open and honest. But the captain, rather logically actually, is the one who's thinking ahead. And so he fe he's feeling her out. And based on that response alone... Based on that sole response, he could pretty much get a gauge on her. And if you watch that whole conversation, the whole time is him probing her with... Uh, I forget the proper psychological term for this, but it's when you're asking a question and the answer doesn't interest you. It's how the answer is presented that answers another question you never asked. In other words, if he was being just bluntly honest, he would say, So, I've been doing very ethically questionable stuff to save my crew. How do you feel about that? Is what he is actually trying to gauge off of her. Successfully, I'm at it because the premise of the very next scene is him going to the first officer saying, "Yep, we got to get out of here." <laughs> In fact, I believe his exact line is, "If she's any indication of the rest of the crew, she will never understand." And I like that. Um, <clears throat> so let's go ahead and get down to it, shall we? Actually, I got one one tiny little additional thing. There's one scene of padding in this episode where Naomi Wildman shows up and says hi to uh, Gilmore. That's her name. I wrote it down here. The, the woman, the engineer woman, Gilmore. I like that scene. In fact, I shouldn't call it padding. It was a scene that was added because they were having runtime issues, but it's not in my opinion, padding, because it's a nice scene. It helps to, you know, it helps to flesh out continuity a bit. Showing Naomi is still here, and it helps to explain a lot of what's going to be happening with Gilmore's character in the future, as well as her character here. The fact that she has genuinely been growing attached to these, to this crew and these people because of the very human, open way they have embraced her. Uh... But let's go ahead and get down to the big thing, right? Because this is, this, this is the rest of what I've got to talk about. This is one of those episodes where I just want to smack Janeway. Just, just right right there, right in the face. Just get the twist right there. Ugh, I want to, I guess this isn't really a smack, is it? I'm using improper term. I want to punch her. I want to punch her in the face. So, <laughs> let's go ahead and get the elephant out of the room first. Yes, this episode, in one way that usually isn't talked about, emulates Threshold. Because they have super dilithium. <laughs> super dilithium is how they actually do at least bother to make an explanation. But this is such a Joe Manoski thing. It's like let's just tech, let's just write in techno babble and let everyone else sort it out. There's just basically a techno babble, no logical, no reasonable explanation for how they managed to get this ship caught up with Voyager and planned to be home within months rather than decades. And it is such a technobabble explanation, and it really does boil down to super dilithium, just like it was back in Threshold. That's all. I just wanted to bring it up. No one ever talks about it. It's a dumb premise. Moving on. The quote that I underlined earlier, and that I've been leading up to, is the quote 
It's easy to be a saint in paradise. I am reminded of another quote, and I don't remember the whole sentence, forgive me. It's from Batman uh, Begins, the first Christian Bale one, if I'm getting the name right there. And it's a quote where young uh, Bruce is talking to Capone, or Falcone, excuse me, Falcone, not Capone. <clears throat> and Falcone, I don't even remember the context, well, I, I remember the context of the conversation. I don't remember the specific wording of the conversation, but one quote that has stuck with me ever since I first heard it is, You've never tasted desperate. I like that quote because it really helps to emphasize something true about human nature. Someone who has never tasted desperate doesn't really understand what the word hardship means. Now, it's not exactly like Voyager has had an easy journey across the quadrant. I'm not trying to say that. But it is so easy to be a saint in paradise to cling to your ideals, to say, my principles are more important than baser things, when you don't really have to compromise those principles. Now, we have had a couple of moments where that has come up. I've talked about a few of those. But this episode really, that this is the arc of this episode. Voyager, for all its flaws, for all the things they've gone through, is a functional ship where they have warm meals, showers and comfortable beds and lighting and family and friends i usually divvy up uh, existence into three categories and i'll be talking about this again in a few episodes too and i have talked about this many times with regards to seven and her character arc survival existence living and it is tiered like this living greater than existence greater than survival survival is obvious you continue to breathe and function but nothing about what you have could be considered a life. Existence is what the vast majority of people have in real life. You know, you go about your life, you have creature comforts, you have things that you care about, but you aren't really living a fulfilling or satisfying existence. However, you are definitely above survival because survival is just bare minimum. You know, you don't have food, you have food that you can actually enjoy. You have regular food, you have regular sleep, that kind of a thing. So, and of course, living is the top, where you actually live a fulfilled, uh, a full, full, um, prosperous, existent life. And I don't mean prosperity in terms of finances or whatever. I mean just whatever it is that you define as life. And I don't want to get too much into that tangent. I could talk about the definition of life many, many times. What I want to talk about here is that there is absolutely no denying whatsoever that Voyager is at the bare minimum, at the exist existence line. I have said before in this show that I believe that Voyager is in the living line, that Voyager is practically a paradise, especially compared to some of the things that other people in this, this, that, 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 in this setting have encountered and have to live with. In fact, one of the reasons I mentioned why Neelix many times is probably so absolutely grateful to be on Voyager's, Voyager's practically a paradise compared to what he else he's used to. Even, even doing menial labor on Voyager is still in the living category compared to what he would be used to, right? Now take the crew of the ship whose name I just forgot. Oh, wow, it literally just jumped out of my head. It's like, that's over there. Um, Equinox, duh, the crew of the Equinox. It's, take their crew. There is, in my opinion, absolutely no denying that they are at the survival level going days without food, constantly under stress, constantly under attack. There's a reason that whole post-apocalyptic survival story has the word survival in it. 
because that's usually the focus of those kind of stories, right? And let's be honest, that is effectively the situation they're in. Even with their new tech, they were still completely screwed. In fact, it is a great irony that if Voyager had not found them, they probably would have finally reached the end of their rope and not been able to pull anything else out of, the, out of their asses for this last little uh, endeavor. So, how easy, how much easier is it to cling to your righteous ideals, to your self-sanctimonious preaching about how you should be in order to be human when you are existing or living? Janeway's never tasted desperate. And it pisses me off the entire episode. I have like three lines here which are in capitals because of how pissed off I was getting watching this episode. The fact that she calls regulations on him, first of all. Let's just start there. What? Just randomly, oh, no. No, you, uh, regulation, blah, 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 blah. I looked it up this morning. Later on in the episode, Savage calls regulations on her too. And her response is, nope! Denied, utterly dismissive about the same regulations she used to make her point earlier. You can argue ethics, you can argue morality, and let me make this clear. What Savage, I keep calling him that, what Captain Ransom and the crew of the Equinox did was wrong. However, being in opposition to wrong does not make you right. Too many people seem to misunderstand this point in real life as well. Just because there's bad guys over there and just because you are fighting those bad guys does not make you good guys. That's not how that works. Janeway is not right just because she is in opposition to Captain Ransom. She is, in fact, in my opinion, more wrong than him. And I mean that utterly sincerely. This is a woman who is, is so sanctimonious and so self-righteous and so full of herself and so absolutely certain that she is in the right and that she is... You can literally see her, just mentally picture Janeway standing on the pedestal looking down her nose at these peasants who violated her ethical code. How dare they? I would never lower myself to you. Just feel that disdain dripping from her voice as she talks to Captain Ransom and that crew. And it's worth noting, Captain Ransom actually tries to convince her. When the truth, he, obviously he kept the truth from her because he'd already filled her out and he knew it wasn't going to work. When the truth came out, then he still tries to reach out. He still tries to convince her and fails miserably because she isn't willing to discuss it. She has already made judgment. And what is making judgment in advance of an argument? Oh, that's right. It's called prejudice. That's actually what that word means, to prejudge before you actually hear any of the information on the specific circumstances. And that's exactly what she did. He gave her this whole story of what they went through. He actually laid it out for her. She didn't give a damn. Her tone didn't change at all. There and then, and then this really pissed me off. There's a scene where he finally capitulates and says, "All right." And you could see it in his acting. Again, Savage, the actor, does a great, great job of this. He says he 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 admits defeat. He says, "All right, I've lost. Please spare my crew." And it's funny because you've we've seen only a small handful of times across Star Trek where a captain has pled for the safety of their crew. And actually, twice it's been Kirk. <laughs> At least twice, I can think of right now. Different actors, same Kirk. Uh, or different Kirks, too, actually, I should say. But anyways, point being that I felt like that was a sincere, moving plea. You know, I will take full responsibility... 
please spare my crew. And her response, you know, they were just following my orders. And her response is, and I quote, uh, I forget the quote. <laughs> I cannot quote. Her response is tough. You know, their, their mistake. That's what she says. Their mistake for following your orders. God, I want to punch her so badly. Just, just right there. <sighs> Let's talk about more things that piss me off. This is also related to this. They're thinking about abandoning the Equinox. That's incredibly stupid. No, let's take a step back here. Temporarily moving ship off the Equinox to prepare defenses and to reconnoiter and then, from a position of strength, retake the Equinox makes perfect sense. Abandoning the Equinox, which is what they're going to do, by the way. So, so I point this out because I've heard some people defend this saying, well, they weren't going to permanently abandon it. And yet everything they say immediately after the, the oh, well, temporarily abandon thing is permanently abandoning. Everything they say after that point is, oh, yeah, no, we're, we're, we're going to permanently abandon it. <laughs> they never use the word scuttle, but that's what actually kept coming to my mind when I kept hearing them talk about stripping the warp core for parts, for God's sakes. And it, I, I can't even put into my to words how stupid that is. Again, temporarily moving away to return from a position of strength makes a lot of sense. There is such a thing as a tactical retreat. But... Just, and the whole reason they're flat out abandoning it is because of Janeway, of course, and her sanctimonious, oh, well, no, I am correct, and I am in charge, and I am right. We should do this, and I will pull rank on you if I have to. There's a line in Babylon 5, and forgive me for not actually remembering. It's actually a whole speech. There's a lot of great speeches in Babylon 5. It's done. It's, it's, don't worry, it's not spoiler. It's, it's already stuff we've already covered. It's said by Londo. And he talks about how it, it's a paper fantasy. It's all treaties and documents. And none of it actually means anything. What matters is blood. I tend to agree with that philosophy. And one of the things that's really made clear in this episode is that Janeway is living in a paper fantasy, that she believes that documents written by other individuals in an entirely different situation, in an entirely different area of space, for entirely different circumstances, at an entirely different time, apply to her now, and she can use that paper fantasy to claim power. For all his many flaws that Captain Ransom has, I can't put that one on the list. Captain Ransom actually lives in reality. What I find even more amusing is that he does have a regulation, some of that paper fantasy, to defend himself. And she gives no counter-argument. Notice that, by the way. She has no counter-argument for him using regulations to justify what he's done. She instead just immediately dismisses it. In case you're wondering, the regulation, and this is a real-life military concept in some cases, too is a captain is able to take any and all means necessary to ensure the survival of his or her crew as they deem fit in a truly emergency situation. And I gotta be blunt, that is definitely what they were in. Do I think Ransom, what Dan Ransom did was wrong? Absolutely. Do I think he has gotten accustomed to the atrocity he is committing? Absolutely. Do I think he probably should have sought other methods after the initial, well, we've already killed one and there's nothing we can do about it situation? Yes, I do. But in no way does that justify Janeway's position. 
Which brings me to my last point. Some people have asked why Ransom goes so far out of his way to basically abandon Voyager. There's a quote that's actually said by the first officer which summarizes it in one single line. It's basically, they are a full ship with tons of supplies and a full crew. They'll be fine. They've already got a technobabble solution for this problem. They just need to implement it. We're not exactly abandoning them to the wilds. We are the wilds. We're jumping back into the wilds. They're the fortress that are going to be fine. They've got warm meals and showers, you know? I mean, come on. And there's a line where Janeway actually contacts him and says, you know, break off and I will fire. And his response is, I'm sorry, what's my alternative? <laughs> because remember, Janeway forced him into that action. He was going to part amicably and without doing anything to, to hurt or hinder Voyager. And he was going to simply go back to his mission and do his thing, whether that's correct or not. She pretty much forced him into a corner. Her alternative for him was, screw you, I'm in charge. It is also worth noting that she has already flat out demonstrated her unwillingness to discuss, to be reasonable or to show leniency. All three of those things she has demonstrated to him directly. Under those circumstances, when you are primarily interested in the safety and, and well-being of your crew, do you think you would be inclined to throw yourself at Janeway's mercy, considering you've already seen she has none? Think about it. One last note I wanted to mention here. This is actually going to come up in the next episode, but I think it's better to discuss it here. Some people have pointed out there is absolutely no way he's going to get away with this. I mean, seriously, the moment they get back to Earth, the only way they could ever possibly get away with this is if they scuttled the ship before they got back to Earth. And I mean, totally destroyed it. And then came home in a shuttlecraft. That assumes, A, they have a shuttlecraft, and B, they're not able to pull anything from the wreckage, and C, they're able to convincingly lie for the rest of their lives. I mean, you, you cannot tell me Feder the Federation will not eventually find out what happened. But as is mentioned in the Part 2, they have no intention of lying about what's going to happen, what they did to get back. They have every intention of getting home and actually serving out their time in prison for what they've done. But that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Because this is the Federation. We've seen what Federation prisons are like. I've been to hotels and resorts in real life that are not the equivalent in terms of quality of a Federation prison. Yeah. Comparing that to the day-by-day -day nightmarish existence they've had in the Delta Quadrant, that's an easy choice. Next week we will discuss Ronald D. Moore, the behind-the-scenes aspect of Voyager, and Equinox Part 2. The Dumbening. <laughs> See you next time, guys.